Father, we thank you for um, a week with you. Um, knowing that you were with us, even when we weren't thinking about it, even when we weren't focused on it, you were with us. You were blessing us. You were guiding us. But Father, I pray right now for us at this moment that you would be with us as we open your word. That you would give us eyes to see the beauty and the riches that we have in Christ. Help us through the power of your spirit to understand this morning things that maybe we have not understood in the past. One thing we know is this, Father, we need to hear from you. And we cannot do that without your help. And so we pray for that now, expecting great things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, uh, as you are aware, we are in the book of John. We have slowly been making our way through. I think we'll be done next May-ish, something like that. Um, June, July, I don't want to get too specific. Um, So recently, about a week and a half ago, I had to go into the uh, eye doctor, which I have to do every three months, and get my eyes tested, and uh, all that kind of stuff. How's that looking to you? Good. So that looks better than anything has ever looked to me. I just, uh, on an eye test, and people wonder sometimes, what's it like to be you? Well, it's like that kind of, um, but a little bit worse. So I went in, and every couple of appointments, I have to get my eyes dilated, and some of you have done that. You know what that's like. So dilation is a little bit tough because your pupils are ginormous, right? And it lets way too much light. And so everything's blinding and everything's glary. And so I put my sunglasses on, but my sunglasses are about three prescriptions behind. That's a whole nother story I won't get into. So I have, you know, I'm, it's blurry from the, um, uh, from the dilation. It's glary and I put on sunglasses that are also uh, don't work for me. So I just, I can't see anything. And for some reason, I scheduled it in the morning, which was a, a huge mistake. I should have done it in the afternoon. And, and then I, my wife drove me home. Now, usually I'll admit this to you. In the past, I've always driven myself home, which is a terrifying thought for anyone who'd be anywhere near me when I'm driving home. I, here's the thing. I, I kind of see the road. I kind of know the lay of the land, right? But I can't, I can't read. I can see kind of uh, signs on the road, but I can't read anything. And I, so I can't really see the, um, you know, if, if pedestrians, bikers. No, I can't. I can't see them. Um, I could see the shapes of people roughly, basically, but I can't, like, you know, if I was to see you, I could see your shape, but I, I wouldn't know who you are. I can't see your face. I can go home, and, you know, if you've done this, you know, there's, what are you going to do? You got to listen to a podcast. I can see my, I could see the shape of my iPad or the TV, but I can't see what's on it, so all you can do is really listen to stuff. In fact, when we got out of the car, I was walking by, and my bike was sitting in there. I'm like, it'd be a really nice day for a bike ride if I wanted to die, you know, but, um, I'm functionally, at that point, I'm functionally blind. I can't see in any meaningful way in order to interact with the world and know what's really going on. And I always think about that because my mom is legally blind. Um, and I have basically her eyes. And so I, you know, when I'm in situations like that at the eye doctor and they're testing and writing down stuff and I lit- literally had uh, the, the technician go, wow, I've never written a prescription that strong before. And, you know, in those moments while you're waiting with the drops to work and everything, I think about the future and I ponder what it might be like for me um, and, and I don't know. But I was, I was thinking this. I couldn't see 
And, and when you can't see, you really think about how important eyesight is, right? And it's the kind of thing that you can easily take for granted if you've never really, if you've not had it. But I was thinking in that moment while I was sitting in there in the, in the office that as important as physical sight is, and it is important, it's not nearly as important as spiritual sight. Spiritual sight is far, far more important on your being, on your destiny, than your physical eyes will ever be. Before I was a Christian, I could see the world around me. I can remember looking at the world around me, but I couldn't really comprehend what it is that I was seeing. Maybe, you know, you became a Christian later in life, and you can identify with that. I could see creation, I could see nature, but I didn't really see what it was saying. I couldn't see what it was pointing to. I couldn't really see that there was a creator. I could hear people talk about truth and talk about lies, but I couldn't really tell the difference between the two because I was spiritually blind. I, I remember going to funerals. I remember like walking by the casket and seeing someone who's dead. I remember the mourning and the crying, but I couldn't see what death points to. It, it points us to something. Solomon talks a lot about that, but I was blind. I, I couldn't see it. I made sinful choices. I suffered the consequences, but I couldn't tell you why. I couldn't connect the dots. I could wake up in the morning to a brand new day, and I could not see it for what it was. I could not see that there was one who had given me life and breath that day, and that he was, he was waiting to embrace me and for me to know him. I was spiritually blind. I was stumbling through life. I was bumping into realities that I couldn't see or comprehend. I was missing out on the beauty all around me, and, and the meaning and uh, the benefits of true sight. Now in John chapter 8, which is where we've been for about a month now, Jesus has been interacting with some people, with some Jews and specifically with some of the Jewish leaders. Jewish leaders who prided themselves on having spiritual insight unlike anyone else. But in reality, as we've already seen and as we will continue to see, they're blind and it's creating a conflict with Jesus. They think they can see, but they're blind, right? You have a problem, don't you? If you think you can see, and you cannot. So in John chapter 8, and we've, we've covered a lot of ground, um, Jesus is teaching at the temple, you might remember, and uh, crowds of people are coming, and there's a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery. It was all a setup. It was, it was a trap. They were trying to trap Jesus. And you might remember his response was, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And so that didn't go as well as the Jewish leaders had hoped. And then Jesus proclaimed to be the light of the world, and the Pharisees pushed back on that. And then Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. And the religious leaders pushed back on that. And Jesus said, you know, abide in me and you'll know the truth and truth will set you free. And they pushed back on that. They thought that was a lie. And then Jesus finally says, you're, you know, the devil is your father and your works prove it. You are actually opposing the very God that you claim to serve. You are blind. And the Jews pushed back. Their defense is this, Abraham is our father. So our DNA makes us good. We are not illegitimate. That's a, that's a poke at Jesus because there was a, there was slander going around that Jesus, right, was conceived outside of, of wedlock. And so these leaders are blind. They cannot see Jesus for who he is, but they think they can. This is the rub here. They can't see him, but they think that they can. They cannot see as miraculous for what they are. We're going to hear a story next week that seems very straightforward, 
and yet they cannot recognize it for what it is. They cannot comprehend the truth of his words. And so they stumble over Jesus, and they stumble over his miracles, and they stumble over his words and his truth. Like severely dilated spiritual eyes, they just cannot see, but they think that they can. And I think that this serves not only as a, a great text for us today, but a great context. We would be remiss not to think about ourselves today. Is it possible that we are somehow spiritually blind and yet think that we can see? And so they serve as a warning to us as we finish up chapter 8. Spiritual blindness exposed. There's just three ways, and we're going to talk about the idea of spiritual sight for several weeks to come. So we're just kind of getting into it today. But spiritual blindness exposed. The first thing I want us to notice in the text this morning is this, that they were blind to the, to the greatness of Jesus. And by the greatness of Jesus, I really mean the humility of Jesus, right? They're just, they, they cannot comprehend the humility of this man and how he can be so great. So picking up in John chapter 8, verse 48, it says this, now the Jews answered Jesus, remember we're just kind of diving in mid-stride here, uh, to the conversation, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So that phrase in the Greek, are we not right in saying, it gives the impression that it was a common opinion amongst all the religious leaders, like it was a consensus. It's like saying, Jesus, everyone knows this about you. Everyone says this about you behind your back, right? Everyone knows you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. So this is the accusation, two accusations really. Samaritan. So what does that mean? Well, Samaritans were Jews who years earlier uh, during the captivity, had intermarried with Gentiles. Um, they set up a competing religion to Judaism, uh, their own spiritual leaders, their own temple, their own rituals, and they were considered physical and spiritual half-breeds, literally, or people who were corrupted, both physically and spiritually. The Jews hated the Samaritans, hated them. They avoided them. They wouldn't travel through their territory. They wouldn't do business with them. So calling Jesus a Samaritan means that he, he doesn't know the true God. He's part of a false religion. He's a false teacher. He's an enemy of Judaism. He's an enemy of God's people, blah, blah, blah. Right? This, is the, this is the first one. And the second one that seems even worse is they accuse him of being demon-possessed. So we know that a, a demon is a servant of, of Satan. He's an, he's an enemy of God. He's an enemy of God's people, an enemy of the truth. And they would often consider demon uh, possessed people to just be insane because often they had, you know, that's kind of the way they conducted themselves. So commentators wonder, what's going on here? Why would they say specifically that Jesus is a Samaritan when they clearly know that he's not? And they would accuse him of being demon possessed when it's obvious that he's not. And the idea here is just that, you know, they're losing the debate, so they're just, it's mudslinging time now. It's just like, you know, uh, grade school um, in the playground, and we're just calling each other names. And they've done this before, right? You might remember they, they said, well, he, associate, he associates with sinners, so he must be a sinner. Uh, he eats and drinks with them, so he must be a glutton and drunk, right? Because <laughs> he eats and drinks. Uh, he ministers to prostitutes, so he's obviously immoral. He ministers to Samaritans. He hangs out with them. He talks with them. He even seeks them out. So he must be a Samaritan. And, and he works miracles, so it must be, they say, by the power of the devil, by, by demons. Therefore, they say he's a heretic and an, and an enemy of God. You know, it makes me think when I read that, because it's so ridiculous, the accusations. 
But it makes me think about today, when a believer today, when someone who follows Christ today blends into the world, blends into society, when we live like believer, unbelievers and talk like unbelievers and act like them and sin like them, we'll meet very little resistance in the world. Why would we? On the other hand, when you live as a disciple, when you obey the words of Jesus, when you proclaim the gospel, when you proclaim the truth, you should be prepared for opposition, for some name-calling, for maybe some flying rocks. We'll read about that in a few minutes. Jesus told us to expect it. He said, don't be scandalized. He said, don't develop a victim mentality. It's an honor. It's actually an honor to be identified as a follower of Jesus. Well, moving on in the text, in verse 49, Jesus answers, I do not have a demon. Interesting, he doesn't even touch on the Samaritan thing. He just says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. That's his, that's his defense. I don't have a demon, and the way you know is because I honor my father. His defense is this. My actions are the opposite of a demon-possessed person. I honor God in every sense. Listen to my words. Look at my actions. Look at the things that I do, my, the miracles, my attitude, the, the truth. Demons dishonor God in everything they do. They lie about God. It's what they do. And they oppose God. Jesus says, just look at my life and see the evidence. But they cannot. They will not because they are blind and they're they are willfully blind. Verse 50. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. So Jesus basically is saying, you know what other people think about me, what other people say about me, if they say, you know, I have a demon, if they, they say this or that about me, that's immaterial to Jesus and to who he is. Of course, it has a lot to do with the person who's saying it. But it's immaterial to Jesus. He says, the only honor I seek is the honor that the Father would give me. That's it. Think about this. If Jesus had been seeking honor and praise, he would have never come to this planet. <laughs> like the last place you should go if that's what you're looking for. He could have stayed in heaven where he's honored and glorified and praised by everyone who is there. Instead, Jesus comes to this earth to seek and to save the lost and to let God take care of the honor, the awards, the plaques, right? All that kind of stuff. What if we did that? What if we decided, you know what? I'm going to focus on serving the Lord. I'm going to focus on bringing honor to the Father. That's my thing, and I'll let God take care of the honor thing. Like, I'll honor Him, and I'll trust Him to honor me. What if we decided, you know, if I don't get a thank you card, not a problem. If I don't get a plaque, no problem. If I don't get, you know, public recognition or gift cards or whatever it is, you know, I'm going to be just fine because I'm doing this for the Lord. Well, can you imagine what that could do to a family, to a marriage, to a church, to a workplace? If there were people in there who just said, I don't, it's not about getting honor, it's about serving the Lord, I'll leave the honor thing to God. In Philippians 2, we see that kind of the other side of this, how it all plays out. Paul, uh, Paul's writing this, he says, your attitude as believers, that's us, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What was his attitude like? Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, the, the honor and the glory and all that that comes with it. He didn't hold on to that, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant that is being born in the likeness of, of men. 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself. The greatness of Christ is always demonstrated in the humility of Christ. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. What did the Father do? Well, that's the rest of the passage. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen? Yeah, that's the glory that Jesus receives. Jesus served God. The Father took care of the honor. But these people, they were blind to that. They were blind to his greatness. The second thing is they were blind to his life-giving power. In verse 51, we continue on. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Wow, that's a, right, that's a big promise. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So what's amazing is just the full stop we do for a moment here in the middle of a contentious conversation. Don't miss what's happening. Jesus is doing a full stop and offering them the gift of eternal life. Right? He's just stopping for a minute and saying, by the way, if anyone, that includes you guys, right, who are seeking to kill me, if anyone keeps my word, he says, if anyone places their trust in Christ and lives by that word, He says they can have eternal life and they will never taste death. To taste death simply means to experience it. And the leader's response is, now we know that you have a demon because you're a liar, right? You're leading people astray. They think Jesus is talking about physical death. He's obviously not talking about physical death. We know that sin brought death into the world. And since all have sinned, all die. And in fact, even Jesus himself will die. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. We know that one day, and this is a hard truth, but one day our heart will stop beating. And one day our body will be put in the ground. And we all, we know this. We know how real this is. We've we've lost people around us. And we've we've thought about the fact that we are going down that same path as well. A couple times a week I'll ride my bike all the way into Camas and and I'll go up to the Camas Cemetery because I know a bunch of people who are buried up there. And usually I go up there get off my bike for a minute, walk around and find a, a gravestone of someone I know and just, you know, usually take a minute to thank God for them and what they meant to, to me and the church. And, but then I'll think a little bit about the fact that someday I'm going to be maybe not there, but I'm going to be in the ground somewhere because that's the reality that we live in. But what Jesus is saying is that even though believers die physically, our soul will live eternally. Our soul will never be separated from God and death. We will go instantly to be with the Lord and we'll have eternal life right this is what it says in John three sixteen, a verse we all know for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish right that is die but have what have eternal life this is what Jesus is talking about yes the body dies but the soul lives on verse 53 They say to him, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? So the logic they have, it's just this. Hey, I mean, Abraham was an incredible man of faith, right? And and the prophets were great men of faith who obeyed God and and followed his word, and yet they died. And, And so will we. And so they ask him, who do you make yourself out to be or who do you think you are? 
Jesus, making statements like that. I mean, the irony is, they're talking smack to the one who created Abraham and every one of the prophets and the one who created them and was sustaining them and giving them the ability at that very moment to reject Jesus, but also giving them the opportunity to believe in him. I think a better question is this. Who do you think that Jesus is? This is the most important question you will ever answer. It will determine your life now and your eternity. In verse 54, the confrontation goes on. Jesus says this. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, you get the irony here, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. If I say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. So there's some interesting stuff going on here. Again, Jesus just doesn't take the opportunity to assert his own glory. His path will include slander and rejection and persecution and mocking and humiliation and ultimately crucifixion. But he's focused on the mission. And again, he's trusting the Father with the honor. And in effect, what Jesus does is he turns the question around and he basically says, who do you think you are? And he calls them liars. Why? Because they claim to know God and they they believe that he does not. They claim to have a relationship with God, to be representatives of God to the people, to be shepherds of the people and guides to the people, and yet Jesus says, you don't even know him. You are blind. Therefore, God, this God that you claim cannot be your God. In John chapter 1, at the very beginning of our study, it says, Jesus came into the world he made, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and they did not receive him. And now, John points out exactly what it looks like in real life. And it's astonishing, and in some ways it's not. So they are blind to his life-giving power. And the, the third thing is this, they're, they're blind to his identity. They, they can't see him for who he is. Verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? So Jesus is talking about Abraham since they brought the subject up. And he says, you know, Abraham is the man that you claim to be your father. And then he says this, Abraham, your, your spiritual father, the, the guy that you look up to. Jesus says, he looked forward to my day. Now, my day is probably a reference to the incarnation or the messianic age or the the time that Christ lived on the earth. So what Jesus is saying is that God had made known to Abraham that one day he would provide a savior for all those who had faith in him, a sacrifice for sin. Because people always knew that the blood of animals could never forgive the sins of people. They were merely a, a pointer to something greater that one day God would provide a perfect sacrifice for sin. And in this, there's an important thing for us to remember, that there has only been one Savior for all sinners, for both Old Testament and New Testament. Those in the Old Testament 
while they would do sacrifices, their real trust was in God that one day he would provide the perfect sacrifice for their sin. They were looking forward to something they didn't really understand. They didn't have all the details. They didn't know when the Savior would come and what he would look like and miracles that he would work, but they trusted God for him. As New Testament believers, we look back to the same Savior and we can see what he did and see how he lived and you know, we know about his crucifixion. But the point is, Old Testament or New Testament, we are all saved by the same sacrifice by the same savior so the jews say how could you have seen abraham who died uh nearly two thousand years ago jesus and you're not even 50 years old right they're just they're doing the math here and they're saying it doesn't work up and jesus said to them truly truly i say to you before abraham was and then he just kind of does a mic drop right he says he says what i am i am now, the Gospel of John, if you're interested in these technical things, um, contains two kinds of I am statements, formal and informal statements. So there are seven formal statements, uh, and we find those in the Gospel of John. A formal statement is a, is a specific description of the person and ministry of Jesus. So, for instance, he, Jesus says, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8. I am the gate in chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd in chapter 10. I'm the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. I'm the way, truth, and life in chapter 14. And I'm the true vine in chapter 15. These are formal I am statements, very specific, tell you things about Jesus. Then there are informal statements, and that's what this is. An informal statement uh, doesn't give us a definitive statement. It reveals something about Jesus that you find in the context. So you have to look at the context. What, what are we talking about? What's going on here? What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about Abraham and how Abraham believed that God would send a redeemer. So when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming that God's self-revealed name given to Moses back in Exodus 3. Remember, he says, say to this people, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God says, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. I am is God's self-revealed and sacred name. Uh, Jesus is claiming the divine name, I am. And the the Jews believed that being descendants of Abraham gave them spiritual sight, gave them spiritual insight. They didn't believe that they were lost, as Jesus claimed. They believed that they were right with God because of their biology, their ancestry. So the irony here is that they claim that their origin is in Abraham. Their spiritual roots are found in him. But Jesus says that Abraham's origin was found in Jesus. That Jesus was his his creator. That Jesus was Abraham's savior and the one that Abraham was looking to to come and, and, and die for the sins of the world. Jesus just says there logically, therefore, to reject Jesus is, is to reject Abraham. So when Jesus says, I am, there's this... Um, teaching device that Jewish rabbis would use called remiz and it it's a Hebrew word that means hint or clue and it would be used as a teaching device by rabbis a rabbi would quote the first part of a scripture and he would stop short and then everyone in the room would know the rest of the passage and they would fill in the blanks right so when Jesus quotes from Exodus 3 every Jew in that room would know how to finish it they would know what it says in Exodus 3 I am I am what This is great. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus says, I'm the God of Abraham. 
Jesus is claiming full deity by using the sacred name of God. Homer Kent says this, by using the timeless I am rather than I was. Jesus conveyed not only the idea of existence prior to Abraham, but timelessness. The very nature of God himself is the second person of the Trinity. And the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew what he was proclaiming. Verse 59, and therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So blasphemy and leading people away from God was a capital offense. Now, usually you would have a trial and there would be evidence and witnesses, but here they are so angry, they're so incensed that they pick up rocks to kill him right then and there. Of course, the irony is, if you think about this, the Jews are accusing Jesus of blasphemy, which is blasphemy on their part. So who should be picking up stones at, at this point? Now, so I said there's really only two possible responses to a claim like that from Christ. Right, one is the response of the, the people that we see here. Uh, they reject Jesus. They reject his words. They remain blind. And they try to remove him from their world. They want to get him out of their culture, get him out of their synagogues. They want to get rid of him. The other option, of course, is to accept his claims as truth, to repent. You hear a lot of that, repent, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand. The word repent, you know, means to, to change your mind. It means to change your thinking, to turn around. So to repent is to change your thinking, to stop disagreeing with God and to agree with God, to stop rejecting Christ as Lord and to receive him as Lord. But there's no middle ground. Jesus cannot merely be a good man. He can't do that. He can't merely be a great teacher. He's worked miracles. He's claiming to be God. Good men, great teachers don't do that. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at a very specific story that's going to point us to the idea of blindness. And the week after that, we're going to take some more time to dive into this. But I want to just, just kind of wrap this up by talking in general terms about spiritual blindness and what we can do. Here's the thing. Every one of us should be paying attention to this. To somehow sit in the pew and think that this doesn't relate to you at all is to do exactly what the Jewish leaders were doing at this moment. So what do we do? How do we deal with the potential spiritual blindness, right? Is that driving you crazy? Here's the thing. Without spiritual sight, life will make no sense. You'll look at something and you won't see it for what it really is. You'll look at creation and you won't see it for the billboard that it is. You could look at the Bible and you won't see what it's saying. You'll wake up in the morning to a new day and you won't get it. You won't understand what it is that you just woke up to. You won't understand, you know, money. What is that? What is a job? You won't understand the value of the unborn or what obedience is, or, right? There are people today who say, oh man, obedience, that's terrible. Christianity, that's, you know, he makes you a slave. You won't see materialism for what it really is. I think today people look at the things Jesus said and they think that those things are actually harmful. Sometimes I'll talk to people and read things from people and say, you know, the things Jesus said were not true. They're, they're harmful. They will ruin your life if you do what Jesus said. It'll ruin your happiness and your, your self-image. That's spiritual blindness. And it has a profound impact on your life, on your decisions, on, on your logic, on your knowledge. 
on your convictions and opinions. It impacts your relationships and your joy and your peace and on and on and on. The blindness of the Jewish leaders led them to try to kill Jesus. And of course, we know that they won't stop trying and eventually they will. They want to remove him and his influence from their world. And of course, people are still trying to do that today, aren't they? To remove the teachings of Christ from society, the claims of Christ, the gospel, the Ten Commandments, and on and on. Sounds exactly like our culture today. But what do we do about ourselves? Well, a couple things. First of all, and this is the starting point, you have to admit your condition. You have to admit that you're spiritually blind. This is where it starts. So in the fourth grade, way back when, when we would start school every year, we would get our eyes tested and our ears tested. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And so, you know, it was fourth grade, was starting, went, got my eyes and my ears tested. And uh, the nurse calls my parents and says, hey, uh, Bobby can't see. All right, like he can't see anything. You need to take him to the optometrist and get some glasses. And I remember thinking, that's crazy. I can see just fine. My parents asked me, they're like, can you not see? And I'm like, yeah, I can see fine. Everything looks fine to me. Right, because I I didn't know any different. I, I didn't know. So we're driving down the freeway that evening. It's an infamous story in our family. Uh, but we're driving down the road that evening, and my dad says, what does that sign say? It's a freeway sign. And I waited and waited until we were right in front of it, and then I read it and said, oh, yeah, this is what it says. And my dad said, no, no, no. Tell me what it says. Tell me what that sign down there says. And I, I said, well, I don't know what it says. And he looked at me, and I, I remember thinking, nobody knows what it says. Nobody can read that sign. You can't read it until you get close to it, right? I didn't know any different. It seemed normal to me. Explained why I was struggling in school. I couldn't figure out why the teacher would write things on the chalkboard nobody could see. Uh, And I had to see an optometrist, right? And then they kind of dialed it in and gave me some glasses. I remember the first time I put on glasses. It was (laughs) mind-blowing. I was like, what? I had no idea you could read a freeway sign from more than like three feet away. It It was crazy. See, here's the thing. When you have poor eyesight, you often don't know it until someone points it out. And the same thing is true spiritually. We need to admit our need and come to God and ask him for help. Psalm 119, 18, it's great. It says, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. I love that. It's just telling God, I don't have the ability in myself. I don't have the spiritual sight to see, but God, you do. And you can grant that to me. So we go to God and we admit our need. In Matthew 16, 15, great story. Everyone is talking about Jesus. They all have opinions about Jesus. Remember that? And, and Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? I know you're Elijah and the prophets and all that. And then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Right? Who do you say? And Simon Peter jumps in. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding, 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 right? Gets it right. Wonderful. But the next verse is what's so telling. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is son of Jonah, For flesh and blood, your intelligence, your mind did not reveal this to you, but my, who? But my Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? How could Peter know who Jesus was and see clearly when other people could not? It wasn't because he was smarter. It wasn't because he was wiser. It wasn't because he simply tried harder, but because God gave him eyes to see. We need God to give us spiritual sight. We need God to reveal truth to us. We need God. We need God. This is a great 
posture to start every day, right? Before we even get out of bed. God, thank you for today. I need you today. Second thing, embrace the cure. We're just talking about the gospel. We talk about this every week, I know, but we always need to look for a way to do this. I like what Edward Clink says in his commentary. He says, Jesus says, I am, and believers respond, yes, you are. I love that. Yes, you are, and we believe in you. In 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, Paul says this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, notice, has shown in our hearts, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to make known to us the gospel, to make known to us Christ, to make known to us our sin and our need for a Savior. To believe Jesus is to believe his words. They go together. The words of Christ are the revelation of Christ to us. In Jesus' day, there were a lot of opinions about Jesus. And today, it's the same same way. So how do you know which opinion is correct about Jesus and the gospel and reality? Well, you know this. You go to God's word. You read the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the works of Christ. But we read the whole Bible because the entire Bible reveals Jesus Christ to us from the beginning to the end. It's all about Christ. So you read it, and you read it some more, and you read it today, and you read it tomorrow, and you get some teaching, and you think about it, you ponder it, you meditate on it, you discuss it, you memorize it, and you put it into practice. That's part of all this. You put it into practice to believe Jesus. It's to believe his words, to believe his words. It's to put them into practice, and as we put them into practice, we discover even more how true they are. In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and notice and does them will be like a wise man who built his house, that is his life, on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, right? Because life has its storms, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. True faith in Jesus believes what he has said. And the proof of that is that we apply it. We apply his word to our lives. That's what faith does. It it produces that in us. And here's the last thing. We need to learn to strengthen our insight. So once you believe in Jesus, you need to keep seeking his gift of sight. When I got my first pair of glasses, life-changing, right? But I have to put them on every day. I have to keep putting them on, not just once. And I have to keep them on all the time. If you're me, <laughs> I'm blind otherwise. Not just now and then, but all the time I must wear them. And I have to go back to the optometrist every three months to see how everything's going, right? It's a good reminder in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It kind of has this idea from a spiritual point of view. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, right? On your own intellect, on your own point of view. Don't lean on that, on your own education. In all your ways, in all your ways, at all times, in every way, in every moment, acknowledge him. 
What does it mean to acknowledge him? It means to seek him. It means to do his word. Acknowledge him in all of your ways and he will make straight your path. He will give a light to your path, as Psalms say, and make the way forward clear to you. Trust in the Lord. Don't depend on your own wisdom. Stop doing that. That's what makes you blind. Seek God. Be humble before God. Read his word. Pray. Ask for wisdom, as scripture says, as James says, and he will show you how to live. Ephesians 1.18 says this. I've just kind of had this passage on my mind all week. I pray also that the eyes of your heart, look at that, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Not these eyes. They're temporary. But the eyes of your heart that is eternal. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to believers and saying it's an ongoing, never-ending process in this life. So don't stop pursuing God-given spiritual insight. Don't stop leaning on him. Trust him and not your own insight. I, so I carry around three pair of glasses everywhere I go. I have these glasses that I can mostly see with. Uh, I have a pair of uh, computer glasses because these are, I can't do that. So I carry those around and then I carry a, a pair of sunglasses that I'm always supposed to wear when I'm outside, but I don't. Um, I carry those everywhere that I go so that I have a decent chance of seeing wherever I go. What if we did that with the word? What if we took the word with us everywhere we go? What if we looked at every situation in life, every decision, every difficulty, if we looked through all of them through the lens of the word of God? And think about the advantage we have. We have it in print. We have it on our computers. We have it on our phone. Oh, and then we could memorize it if we wanted to and have it with us everywhere we go. What if what if, what if? Imagine how that would revolutionize your life and your, your relationships in, in this place. Admit my condition, embrace the cure, strengthen my insight. Next week, we're going to continue this on, but let me, let me pray for us and we'll close in worship together. Father, I thank you for uh, our time in the Word. I thank you for the Word. I thank you for the gift that you have given us the revelation of Christ that you have given to us in your word. Father, I would agree, echo the words of Paul who said, Father, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see your glorious things, that we may see Christ for who he really is that we would see the beauty of your world, of your word, that we would see our relationships, our opportunities, our, our jobs, our difficulties, and our successes through the lens of Scripture. Father God, we thank you for your word. 
may it be always and ever on our hearts and may it give our, our, the eyes of our heart the ability to see what is true. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say.